0: Leviticus 26. We're finishing Leviticus next week, guys, um, and so I'm sure you're excited about that. Um, Leviticus 26 today, which is a chapter that's all about the blessings and the cursings. Not like the blessings from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. The blessing, Grace, she died 30 years ago. <laughs> you guys, I, you guys are like asleep or something. All right. Blessing and cursing. So blessing and cursing is a big theme in the Bible. Um, You see it right from Genesis chapter one. When God creates stuff, he blesses it. He says this is good. Right. He creates mankind. He says this is very good. God is blessing creation as he blesses it, as he creates it. He celebrates it. But then what we see in Genesis chapter three is the is cursing immediately comes into the picture. Because God has given Adam and Eve um, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil not to eat from. And the tree of life, which they can eat from. They don't listen to God. They don't obey his voice. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then what happens is a curse. And when we hear that word curse, I think we tend to view it from like a mystical witchcraft kind of lens, right? And so we we think it's like, so then God cursed the world with with bad voodoo. But that's really not what cursing is all about. You have to think of blessing as synonymous and representative with life, and you have to think of cursing as the opposite of that. Cursing is related to whatever doesn't give life, what fractures relationship instead of reconciles relationship. And so from that point in time, when what happens commonly known as the fall, when Adam and Eve rebel against their creator, is you see the... Beginning of cursing, Adam and Eve have a fractured relationship vertically. They have a fractured relationship um, horizontally. They have a fractured relationship with creation. Right now, instead of tending the garden, now they have to work the land. And so you see the immediate um, impact of cursing. But what we also see in Genesis is that God picks a man named Abram who's going to become Abraham, and he says, I'm going to use you to bring a what? To bring a blessing, right? And so we see this blessing and then cursing, and then God's response is blessing. And that makes sense because even in Genesis 3 when God curses, he says, I'm going to bring a blessing from one of Eve's Um, one of Eve's children way, way, way down the road, which is going to be Jesus. And God makes a promise to Abram saying that through you, the whole world is going to be blessed. And so God promises this blessing. Now that tracks all the way down to the nation of Israel who God rescues out of Egypt in order to bless them by making them his nation, his inheritance. And he says that he's going to place them in a promised land and that word land used to describe the promised land is the same land or the same word that's used in Genesis 1 to describe the world that's created. And so it's designed to have us kind of think back to the garden of Eden that they were placed into a garden where they would God would bless them and they would obey him and God would bless them. And so now God says he's going to put them essentially in a new garden in this promised land. And so part of this agreement goes back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, where God said to the first humans and now to Israel, I'm putting you in this garden to tend it, to keep it. I'm going to bless you, but I expect you to listen to my voice. I expect you to be a blessing to the nations around you, but you have to listen to my voice. And so in this chapter, he's explaining to them the terms of that agreement, that if you listen to my voice, you will be blessed and you'll be a blessing. If you don't listen to my voice, just like your ancestors, Adam and Eve, then you're going to be cursed. And so that's what this chapter is all about. Now, you have to know that in the ancient Near East, Uh, Covenant documents these covenants are kind of like the promissory language of the Bible Um, Covenant documents often ended with blessings and cursings And so you have to think of it as kind of like the land lease agreements That we talked about last week with the contract of what happens if you don't follow through with the contract that you sign And so with Leviticus 26 you guys ready? I hope you are Leviticus 26, verse 1. You shall not make idols for yourself or erect an image or a pillar. You shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. And you shall keep my Sabbaths, and you shall reverence my sanctuary. That's the tabernacle. I am the Lord. And if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you... We'll pause there. So... You have to notice you have these statements, if you, then I, if you, then I. And that's throughout this chapter. And so whenever you're reading the Bible, you see those kinds of things. Those are the types of things you circle because those are the grammatical structures you want to look for. And so what's the point here? God wants his people to experience his blessing. Saw that in Genesis 128. We saw it in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. God wants to bless his people. Now, under the law, this is what we're looking at in Leviticus, the law, the first five books of the Bible, also called the Pentateuch or the Torah, <clears throat> under the law, the old covenant, blessing was experienced because of obedience, But it's important that you know this thing because it's a common misconception in religion all over the world. Obedience was, even then, even then in the old covenant, obedience wasn't about how to earn a relationship with God. They were his people. They had been rescued out of slavery to be his people, okay? And so obedience wasn't about how to become his people. Obedience was the right response to a God who rescued them, okay? Now, for us, it's important for you to know that the point is this. God wants to bless you. And I don't mean that in like a Joel Osteen way, right? Is that how he smiles? Right? (laughs) Right? I don't mean in a Joel Osteen way like, I want you to be happy, right? That's not what I mean, (laughs) okay? He doesn't necessarily want you to have your own personal Learjet. What I mean is that everything from Genesis to Revelation ultimately has been about how God is blessing his creation, how God is bringing a blessing to his creation. He's a good God. He's a generous God. He is a saving God. He is a blessing God. And these aren't just New Testament ideas. These are Bible ideas, okay? And so you can't unhitch the Old Testament because the Old Testament is incredibly relevant to this whole story. All right, let's continue in verse four. He says, then I will give you your rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, they shall fall before you by the sword, Five of you shall chase a hundred, a hundred shall chase ten thousand. Your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you. That sounds familiar. And will confirm my covenant with you. Let's just pause there. Fruitful and multiply is connected with blessing always. It was connected with blessing in Genesis 1. It was connected with blessing in Genesis 12. It's connected with blessing here. I will make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. Verse 10, you shall eat old store long kept. You shall clear out of the old to make way for the new. And I will make my dwelling among you. My soul shall not abhor you. My soul shall not hate you. And I will walk among you and will be your God. You shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Then that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect so in this section God begins unpacking all of the blessings that he says if you then I these are the blessings that God is going to shine upon them if they obey their land lease agreement the old covenant law God says if you do this I'm going to bless you and so the blessings begin they escalate here the blessings begin by addressing the physical needs of of the Israelites. From verses 4 to 10, that's what we see. Physical needs. He's going to provide for their harvest. He's going to have peace in the land. There's not going to be any lions, tigers, bears. Thank you. Thank you, Dina. (laughs) Victory over their enemies. They're going to have lots of babies. Their shelves are never going to run dry. Speaking of which, (laughs) during the pandemic, I felt like Every time I went in my garage to get, like, some dry good, it never ran out. But now I feel like it always runs out. Does anybody else feel like that? I kind of felt like God was providing me with supernatural amounts of rice and beans during the pandemic. They call me, So all of these, you have these, these physical needs that God says, I'm going to bless, I'm going to bless, I'm going to bless. And then ultimately that leads to something more important, which is the spiritual needs. Their relationship with God. He says, I will live among you. Now, this is crucial because realize this is what we're hoping for leading back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. God used to walk in the garden in the cool of the day. But then, because they violated their agreement with God, they wound up having to get kicked out. Right? And then God says, I want to walk with you. I want to be among you. I want to dwell in your midst. That's why he's going to ha- give them the tabernacle. That's why he's going to put his presence in the temple one day. And this is the culmination of blessing, that God will be with his people. All right? This goes to the end of the Bible, at the end of the book of Revelation, when the ultimate blessing that we see is that God is in their midst. Okay? He says, I won't hate you. Seems like a good thing. I won't hate you. Not only will I live among you, I won't hate you. (laughs) He's going to enjoy them. And after all, this makes sense because God rescued them from slavery. He wants them to walk in freedom. He wants them to walk in blessing. That God didn't just save them and say, you know, whatever, enjoy it. No, God wants to have a real relationship. Now, as parents we understand this chain of blessing, right? When your kids listen to you, you're tempted to say things like, sure, you can have dessert, or um, yeah, you can have a friend over, yeah, you can have a sleepover, sure, let's go to the boardwalk, those sorts of things. But when they don't behave like that, you're less apt to want to shower them with blessings. And so this idea of obedience and blessing, it's like hardwired into our DNA, right? It's your natural response as a parent or as a leader. All right, Leviticus 26, 14. And here we get, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six. Six times in this next section, God is going to say, but if you will not listen to me. All right? And so six times there's that phrase or one like it. If you will not listen to me. In spite of this, if you will not listen to me. If you walk contrary to me and you will not listen to me. And so this is the opposite potential response, right? One response is to obey God in his land lease agreement. And the other one is to not... Obey God. Verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, if your soul abhors or hates my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I, if you, then I, then I will do this to you. Here we go. You said you were looking forward to it. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and makes the heart ache. You shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. Okay? That's section one. Two. And if in spite of this you will not listen, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. Your strength shall be spent in vain for your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Third one, then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. Next movement. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me but walk contrary to me, I will walk contrary to you. I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. I will bring sword upon you Thou shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you and you shall be delivered into the hand of your enemy. And when I break your supply of bread, 10 women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight and you shall eat and not be satisfied. Let's pause there. So just as the blessings escalated, what we see here is the cursings also escalate. They begin with issues related to difficulty in the land sickness, unhealthy crops, wanting harvests, enemies eating your grain, wild beasts coming back, people r- running into your garage taking your rice and beans, right? These kinds of serious situations. Wild beasts eating your cattle, and the fact that you're never satisfied. All part of a curse. But that's not what i primarily want you to see here what i want you to see here is how ridiculously patient god is that in this section six times he says but if you still won't listen but if you still won't listen but if you still won't listen he doesn't say and if you won't listen i'm smacking you that's it no he says if you still won't listen I'm going to begin the process of discipline. And if you still don't listen, I'm going to continue, but just turn up the heat a little bit. And if you still won't listen, I'm going to turn the heat up a little bit more, and I'm going to turn it up a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And as really what God is doing is he's giving more grace, isn't he? As they give more sin, he gives more grace. I'm going to give you more time to repent. And this is God's character. I mean, do you realize that God told Abram, he said, I'm going to send your descendants into slavery for 400 plus years because the fullness of the sin of the Canaanites has not yet reached its, you know, completion. And so God is incredibly patient, giving ample time to repent, ample time to repent, ample time to repent. And in that process of giving time, God turns up the heat so that people are experiencing a type of cursing, which is really God's discipline designed to get them to open their eyes and repent. Okay? You guys following me? Thank you, Steve. Glad the elders are following me. All right, verse 27. If in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, I will walk contrary to you in fury. That's not something you want God to say to you, right? I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I myself will discipline you sevenfold your sins. This is when it gets real. All right, guys. I'm just going to throw it out there. You shall eat the flesh of your sons. You shall eat the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places. That's their places of pagan worship. I'll cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. And my soul will abhor you. I will lay your cities waste and make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your pleasing aromas. In other words, you're going to offer sacrifices, and I'm not even going to acknowledge it, okay? And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations. And I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Then, let me just pause here. Listen, I don't know, I don't know, and I'm not going to pretend like I do know. But when I read these verses, I realize this is specifically about a land lease agreement between God and the nation of Israel in the Old Covenant. I understand that. But as I read this, I can't help but think about, and like I said, I'm not saying that I'm right. Maybe someone can, can redirect me. But I can't help but think about so many nations in the world who are reaping all of these things. I mean, you think about the nation like of Afghanistan. All of these things have happened, and now God has scattered them to the far parts of the world where now they're hearing about the blessing that comes in Jesus Christ. Right. And you, this is like with Syria and even in our own nation, you think about, even though we don't have a land lease agreement, right. But you think about this idea of reject God, reject God, reject God. And God responds with discipline, 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 discipline. And it feels like as we turn up the heat on our sin, God continues to remain patient But there comes a day when maybe the patience ceases. Maybe that's not from God. Verse 34, then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. While you are in your enemy's lands, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbath. That's what we were talking about last week with the year of Jubilee and the Sabbath rests. That's what he's referring to. As long as it lies desolate it shall have rest the rest that you that it did not have on your sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. So in other words they're presupposing that they're not going to follow the year of jubilee and the land year sabbaths like we talked about last week. And as for those of you who are left I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies the sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight. And they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. They shall stumble over one another as if to escape a sword, though none pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. And you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity, and also because of the iniquities of their fathers they shall rot away like them. Okay, well, like I said, this escalates really fast. It culminates with getting kicked out of the land, but cannibalism, destroying idols, not smelling their sacrifices, desolation of cities being scattered and the land resting while everybody who remains rots. But realize that the real punishment here is this is a people who knew God. This is a people who knew God, who had access to his presence, and now they're removed from it. The real punishment here isn't the fact that your pomegranates no longer grow like they used to. The real punishment is the fact that they no longer have access to the presence of God. It's the same punishment that we saw with Adam and Eve, that they no longer have punishment to the presence of God. But by the time this happens, I have a feeling that by the time you go through six rounds of discipline and rejection, discipline rejection, by the time you go through six rounds, I don't think people really care anymore. By that point in time, they're upset that they got kicked out of the land. They're not upset that they sinned against God, which is the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow says, I'm sorry I got caught. Godly sorrow says, I sinned against God and I'm unworthy to even be called his child. Leviticus 26:44 Yet for all of that when they are in the land of their enemies I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. God's never going to break his promise. Why? For I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord or I am Yahweh. So even in the worst of the discipline identified in these cursings, even the worst discipline is not intended as a final rejection but as a means to have them turn back to God. See, God wants people to repent. He wants people to return. And as we will see, he goes to extremes to make this a reality. Now, this is where I want to pause. Because it would be really easy at this point in time to preach a biblically inaccurate sermon and then to tell you guys how what you really need to do is try harder. That would be... I mean, you could preach that, right? I could read these verses and then I could lecture you guys on how you don't try hard enough and that's why your garden stinks, right? I mean, I could do that. It would be wrong. It would be wrong because this is what we read in the book of Galatians. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Why? Because the response to failure is cursing. And guess what? You're going to fail the law. You're going to fail it yesterday. You're going to fail it today. You're going to fail it tomorrow. And if you think, I think I'm doing pretty well, realize the law is summarized as this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength all the time and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you're honest, you don't even know what it means to love the Lord your God with all your soul. And so no, you don't obey the law. Even when you think you're doing it, you don't obey the law. You just obey the law more than the next guy. Right? But not as much as Mother Teresa, right? And so this is the spectrum that we find ourselves falling on. And so all who rely on obeying the work of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Why? Because you can't obey the law to receive the blessing. For it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Now, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, promised in Genesis 12, might come to Gentiles, that's us, so that we might receive the promised spirit, that's the blessing for the world, through faith. So let's think about this. Nobody could live up to the old covenant. You, by the way, didn't even have an option unless you're Jewish. Okay, so that wasn't even an option for you. You were excluded from the covenant. You were called not my people. That's who you, that was your name, all right? My name was not my people when I came to God. No one could live up to the old covenant. You can't even obey your parents, okay, let alone obey God. But God promises another covenant. He says, I'm going to give you a new covenant that's going to supersede and swallow the old covenant." And so in the new covenant, because God knows that you can never be good enough to get the blessing, you can only receive the cursing, you earn the cursing, he takes the cursing and he puts that on Jesus. And then Jesus, who earned the blessing, he takes the blessing and he puts it on you. That's what the gospel is, that Jesus receives your curse that you earned because the wages of sin is death, so that you could receive his blessing, which you didn't earn, but he earned on your behalf. Jesus becomes the culmination of the curse of the old covenant on that cross. And God pours out his wrath on the only one who actually earned the blessing. The only way to salvation is not through good works, It's not through attendance. It's not faith plus trying hard. It's not believing in Jesus plus making sure you check all of the boxes and you don't go bowling, right? That's not what saving faith is. Saving faith is the fact that Jesus has done it, and you're placing your trust in what he has done. And because of what Jesus has done, you have a way to experience forever the blessing that you never earned, that you earned the curse, but God wants to give you the blessing forever. That's why Paul says in Ephesians, he has poured out on us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms and why eventually it's going to culminate with us walking with God in the cool of the garden when he remakes this whole thing. Guys, that's good news. (laughs) That's why it's called the gospel. The gospel means good news. This is the good news. The good news is that you earned a curse, but instead you get a blessing. So what do we need to get out of this? What do we need to remember? One, God disciplines me. He disciplines you from a posture of patience, from a posture of love, from a posture of desiring you to be blessed. Can you just realize that for a second? When you feel, and we all know what that's like, when God's like pick, 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 when he's trying to get something at you, and you're like, I don't want to, I don't want to give it up. I don't want, I don't want, I don't want, and God's just like pick, 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 pick. Realize the reason he's picking is because he wants to give you a blessing. He wants to bless you, and he knows that he can't bless you until he removes that. He wants to replace that with something better. God is so patient. He's so patient with the Israelites. And how much more is he going to be patient with us in the new covenant? But we don't despise his patience. We appreciate it because his kindness leads us to repentance. His patience leads us to repentance. That God is patient, desiring that none should perish, but all should have eternal life. And so, one, realize that when God disciplines you, he's not like a mean God who doesn't want you to have fun. Realize that God is disciplining you, trying to get your attention because he wants to give you something better. And the second thing is this. When we resist his discipline, we invite a more surgical response. Can I put it that way? (laughs) When we constantly reject his discipline, we invite a more surgical response. God is so kind, even when we're stubborn. He points, he pokes, he prods, he scratches. Eventually, hopefully before utter humiliation... He gets your attention. Sometimes it takes utter humiliation for us to wake up. But none of us want to get there, right? We want to repent long before that happens. See, but what happens when we sin is we get this numbing effect on our conscience. And eventually things that used to bother us no longer bother us. And we get numb and we get numb. And eventually we don't care. And then that can, in, a really, in the extreme, it can culminate with you ruining your life. And we see it all the time. We see it in family. We see it in friends. We see it in churches. We see it all the time. And that leads us to the third thing is this. Godly sorrow as opposed to worldly sorrow is the proper response and it's always received with forgiveness and favor. Godly sorrow is the proper response and it's always received from God with forgiveness and favor. See, when you get crushed by your sin and you feel the weight of your offense against God and you cry out to him for forgiveness, God is there because God loves forgiving sinners. He loves forgiving sinners. And for those of you who have been in the faith for many years and you've grown, you know what this is like because there's a sense where as a believer, you feel the rush of the Holy Spirit when you forgive other people. Like it's a, it's a beautiful thing to forgive other people. Imagine how God feels. He loves forgiving sinners. He doesn't do it with disdain. He doesn't do it. I can't believe I got to forgive this idiot again. No, he loves forgiving us. But if your sorrow is worldly, this is what worldly means. I guess I'm sorry. That's, what, that's worldly sorrow. When your spouse says, you know, you did this. Oh, I guess I'm sorry. Sorry for caring too much, right? Worldly sorrow. When you apologize like Michael Scott, all right? Worldly sorrow. That's when we just got busted. And we want to play like we're sorry, but we're really not. This is worldly sorrow. Oh, I'm really sorry. Can things go back to normal now? That's worldly sorrow. That's not true repentance. True repentance leaves you gut-wrenched. And you want to submit to the Lord, and you want to place yourself in his hands. Worldly sorrow its political sorrow. And we see right through it. And if we see right through it, you better believe God sees through it, okay? Because if it smells funky to us, you can imagine what it smells like to the Lord. God sees right through fake repentance. He sees to your heart. He sees to my heart. And so what do we do? Well, we respond to the discipline of God with true repentance, with godly sorrow, so that, as Peter says in Acts chapter 2, God might pour out on you times of spiritual refreshing. Peter says in Acts chapter 2, he's preaching to this group of people uh, at the day of Pentecost from all over the world. They'd been scattered, by the way. And he's preaching to them, and he says, By the way, you killed the author of life. You nailed him to a tree, but God raised him from the dead. He's coming back, by the way, to judge. And they go, whoa, as they were cut to the heart. They experienced godly sorrow. They're cut to the heart. And they say, what must we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, each one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. And this isn't just for you. This promise is for your children and all generations and all those who are far off from God who are called to him. And he says, and he's going to bring times of jubilation and times of refreshing as he sends his Holy Spirit upon you. Now, I don't know where you guys are at. I don't know where you're at. I mean, there's a lot of you who I know well, there's some of you who I know on a cursory level. I do know this. There's a lot of people in churches who have never actually responded to godly sorrow, that they're churched, that they grew up in a Christian worldview, but they never actually felt the sword of the spirit cut their heart apart. Maybe today that's you for the first time. Maybe it's for the 10,000th time. But don't despise the conviction of God because he ultimately is convicting you and disciplining you because he wants to bless you. He loves forgiving sinners. He went to the depths to make it a reality. And if that's you today, know that the gospel is good news. And so hear it and embrace it as the good news that it is. If you are a person who needs to pray for repentance for the first time or the hundredth time, please know you can come up and the elders will be available after the service for prayer because we'd love to pray for you and with you and celebrate God's favor and grace in your life. Let's pray. Father God, um, we just thank you for your grace poured out. I thank you that the gospel is good news for sinners. It's not good news for religious folk. It's not good news for people who try really hard. It's good news for ragamuffins and prostitutes. It's good news for tax collectors and gluttons and drunkards. It's good news for people who are sick and dead in sin like us. So we thank you, Lord, that we can be blessed because Jesus was cursed. I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit so that we too can experience remarkable times of refreshing. And we look forward to the day when you finally return and you bring us into your presence for all eternity. In your name, only because of your name, we pray. Amen.